Acts chapter 3, we're going to begin reading verse 1. Let me set this up for you and just remind you that in the book of Acts, uh, the church was um, hated. They were hated by the Jews. They were hated by the Romans. Um, They were uh, ostracized. They were imprisoned for their faith. Uh, They were shut down. They were told not to talk. They were persecuted. They were the minority and yet, if you read the book of Acts, they turned their world upside down. I um, do not think it is appropriate for us to think that the best days of the church in America are over for whatever reason, because the one who said he would build his church hasn't moved from his throne a bit. And uh, if in the book of Acts they can turn their world upside down, I'm just naive enough to believe that we can do that still today. Say amen if you believe that. So I want you to hear this message today with that backdrop. Acts chapter 3 and verse number 1. When Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, there was a certain lame man from his mother's womb, he'd always been this way, who was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful did that to ask alms or to beg from those who entered the temple. Who when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he lifted him up immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he leaping up stood and walked and entered the temple with them walking, leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Flip over to chapter 4 and verse 1. Chapter 4 and verse 1, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so they laid hands on them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Look down at verse 13 now, if you would. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed... A notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in his name. So they called him and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you need to judge. But for us... We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, 
They let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and they said, Lord, you are God. The God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand, God, whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Holy Spirit, speak to us in these moments that we share together today. Lord, we know that it is a challenging time. We also know, Lord, that people around the world and nations beyond us experience what we are experiencing in just a very small level all the time and much, much greater. So I pray, God, that we would have a grander appreciation for those who around the world don't have the freedoms that we have enjoyed and yet still serve you fervently. And I pray, God, that you would challenge us as the people of God to recognize that we are to walk and live our lives as miracles of you and to allow your presence to flow through us to make room for you to work in our lives and to do that which we may have thought impossible. I ask God that you would anoint me today, not because I am something special, not because I have somehow worked hard enough or lived holy enough to have earned or deserve it because neither are true, but would you anoint me so that I can speak clearly your word and give us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today. I ask God that you would supernaturally captivate the attention of everyone in this room and may your word change us for the sake of eternity, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna continue today our three-part series on prayer. And the focus of this series is to remember that anything of spiritual value, anything of spiritual value must start with prayer. We are not going to accomplish anything of any value in the kingdom unless we begin that activity with prayer. Last week we talked about the fact that vision starts with prayer. Next Sunday we will talk about revival starts with prayer. Today I wanna to talk about miracles. Miracles start with prayer. A miracle defined is very simply surprising, a surprising and welcomed event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. Something that can't be explained, something that happens beyond what we could have created ourselves. That's what a miracle is. It is inexplicable by natural or scientific laws. The Bible has a lot to say about miracles. It has a lot to say about God and miracles. The psalmist recognized that miracles were actually part of the character of God. 
In Psalm 77, verse 14, the psalmist says, You are the God who works wonders, and you have made known your might among the people. And then later on, the psalmist said in Psalm 105, verse 5, Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. So the psalmist says it's just part of who God is to do the miraculous. We also know that that miracles are part of the self-revelation of God. He reveals himself as a God that does that which is supernatural. Listen to what he says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32 in verse 27. He reveals himself. He says, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. And he says to Jeremiah, ask him, is there anything too hard for me? So God is self-revealed as a God who works miracles. All through the Old Testament, the miraculous is present. The very act of creation, God spoke the word and things became out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the word. Everything became out of nothing. That is a miracle. The crossing of the Red Sea, the rolling back of the waters, manna every single day for 40 years, save the Sabbath day, God provided manna for the children of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. All of the Bible is chock full of the miraculous power of God. The creation of humanity, the very very development, the very creation of a life inside the mother's womb. The psalmist says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are knit together in our mother's womb. What an incredible miracle that is. Indeed, all of life is in fact a miracle. A miracle in scriptures, especially in the New Testament, um, really come in three categories, or there's three Greek words that are used to describe miracles. The first one is the gr- Greek word semion. Semion. We see it in this text that we read to you earlier in Acts 4, 29 and 30. Lord, look on your, their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs, semion, the word signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So that word semion is the word signs. There's a second Greek word that is used, and it is dunamis. Uh, dunamis is where we get the word dynamite. It has great power. We read in Acts 8:13. Even Simon himself believed, and afterwards he was baptized. He continued with Philip and seen, look at this, signs and great dunamis, great miracles performed. He was amazed. This, by the way, is the same word that Jesus used in Acts chapter 1 when he said to his disciples just before he went back to heaven, he said, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that word power is dunamis, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So there's semion, and there's dunamis. There's power. There are miracles. And the third Greek word that is used is teres. And teres is a word that is always, every single time, is translated in the English as wonders. And it is always joined with signs. So every time you see signs, semion and wonders, it is semion and terrace, signs and wonders. And it all speaks about the character and the self-revelation of God who is a miracle worker. How many believe God still works miracles? Do you believe that? And so these words in the New Testament speak of that supernatural miracle working God. C.S. Lewis wrote these words, those who assume that miracles cannot happen 
are merely wasting their time by looking into the text. We know in advance what results they will find, for they have begun, they've started their journey by begging the question. They don't have any faith. They don't believe that it can happen. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite writers of all time, this is kind of a long quote, but he said, I also long in the tender mercies of Christ that among us there may be the following. Answers to prayer. Miracles should not be uncommon. I am not a miracle preacher, he said. I've been in churches where they've announced miracle meetings. If you look in the Saturday newspaper, you will see occasionally somebody who will hit the town and announce, come out and see some miracles. That kind of performing I don't care for. Tozer says you can't get miracles as you would get a chemical reaction. You can't get a miracle as you get a wonderful act on stage by a magician. God doesn't sell himself into the hands of religious magicians. I do not believe in that kind of miracles. I believe in the kind of miracles that God gives to his people who live so close to him that answers to prayer are common and these miracles then are not uncommon. He goes on to talk about John Wesley. He said, John Wesley never lowered himself to preach miracles once in his life, but the miracles that followed John Wesley's ministry were unbelievable. On one instance, he had to make an engagement and his horse fell lame and could not travel. Wesley got down on his knees beside his horse and prayed for his healing. Those of you who think dogs and horses are going to heaven, you really love that about Wesley. Wesley got down on his knees and he prayed for healing and he got back up and rode without the horse limping to where he was going. He didn't publicize the miracle and say, we'll have a big tent here and advertise it. God just did those things for him. And then he finally ends by saying, C.H. Spurgeon, one of the great preachers, did not preach healing but he had more people delivered an answer to prayer than any doctor in London. These are the kinds of miracles Tozer says that I am talking about. And then Philip Brooks, who wrote the great Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, says this, don't pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. Don't pray for tasks equal to your powers. I love this. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Then the doing of your work shall be no miracle, but you shall be a miracle. I want to talk for a few minutes this morning as you listen. I want to talk about what does it look like to have a life that is a miracle. God wants our lives to be miracles. Let me go again to the text that I read to you, Acts chapter 3, incredible story. Peter and John are going in the ninth hour of the day. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. They are going to the temple like they always do to pray. When they get to the temple, there is a man who is over 40 years of age who has never walked. He's a lame man, and the only way he survives is by begging for money at the temple. And they are headed into the gate that is called Beautiful, and that is where this lame man is laying, and he is begging money for them. And Peter says, look at me. And the man looks at him thinking he's going to give him money. And Peter says, we don't have any money. Silver and gold have we none. But what we do have, we're going to give to you. So in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I want you to rise up and walk. And the Bible says that a miracle took place. That man, strength came to his ankle bones. He stood up, he began to walk and leap and praise God. And everybody was astonished. They were all amazed at this miracle that had taken place. We get to Acts chapter 4, and these guys now have quite a gathering. Peter and John, they did an incredible miracle. And there's lots of people gathered around them. And so they're using this opportunity to preach the gospel. 
They're preaching about Jesus, and they're preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. Well, that really hacks off the Jews because they don't believe in this Jesus thing, and so they are troubled, and so they arrest Peter and John because Peter and John have been preaching about Jesus and about the resurrection. But when they got them in court, they didn't know what to do with them. They, they talked to one another and said, what are we supposed to do with these guys? Because there was a notable miracle that happened. If we do something bad to them, we're really going to have an uprising. Everybody's going to be mad at us and angry at us. They, they may revolt against us. But here we have these guys that are spreading a message that we don't want them to spread because that could overtake us as well. And so they were between a rock and a hard place. And finally, they looked at Peter and John. They said, we're going to let you go. But we're going to tell you, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And I'm sure Peter and John kind of smiled and smirked and chuckled and said, okay, well, you know, that can be the instructions that you give us, but we have a higher charge. We have to obey God rather than men. And so they were let go, and uh, when they went back to the house where the church was gathering, they gathered together and they prayed. And this is their prayer. Look at it again. Lord, we want you to look on the threats, their threats. And we want to ask you to grant us to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. With signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they finished praying, the place where they were gathered was shaken. I want to talk about from their experience and from the response that follows what it looks like to have a life that is a miracle. Number one, five things. I'm going to give them to you very quickly. Number one. The life that is a miracle is one that is comfortable with the presence of Jesus. Comfortable in the presence of Jesus. This is our three weeks, 21 days of fasting and prayer. You can't pray unless you're comfortable in the presence of Jesus. If you're going to have a life that is a miracle, you have to have a life that is comfortable in the presence of Christ. Look at Acts 4.13. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, this is the Jewish council, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And look at, look, look at this. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. There was something about Peter and John that just stood out. These guys had been in the presence of Christ. Let me just ask you the question. Are you comfortable? Are you comfortable in the presence of Jesus? Are you as comfortable in the presence of Jesus in worship and in prayer, just you and he alone, as you are talking about a ball game or going to a ball game with someone or having a party at your house or going to a movie, are you, are you as comfortable in the presence of Christ as all of those other things? Let me give you four tests just to ask yourself these questions. Do you hunger for more of him? Do you really wake up every day saying, I want more of Jesus? I want to be more like him. You see, there are some people that are happy with their initial measure of Christ. That's good enough. They're saved. They know they're not going to go to hell. That's the big thing. They got that box checked, and now they're pretty sure they're going to go to heaven, and they're just kind of comfortable with that. Are you hungry for more of Jesus? If you're not hungry for more of him, you're really not comfortable in his presence because in his presence, he's going to draw you to know him more. Secondly, do you sense a boldness to speak for Christ? These men said, we must obey God, not men. And when they prayed, they prayed, God, don't get us out of the fire. Just give us more boldness to preach. Help us to have more confidence about you. 
Do you sense a boldness to speak of Christ? Do you want to tell people about Jesus? Or do you want to cower and, and kind of say, well, I, I don't know how things are going. Do you sense a boldness for Christ? Thirdly, are you spiritually prepared for any crisis? You know the reason they didn't flip out when things happened bad to them is because they prayed before this. They, they had communion with Christ. They knew Christ. And so when a crisis came, they knew what to do. They were comfortable in his presence. And so they prayed. This last week, Christians across this nation have absolutely lost their minds and thought that the world is definitely coming to an end and we're cowering in, in all of this discouragement. But those who know Christ, who dwell in the secret place of the Most High, are spiritually prepared for crisis because they communicate with Him on a daily basis. Their lives were prayed up. Each and I missed one. Thirdly, does your life bear spiritual fruit, visible spiritual fruit? I got excited about telling you number four that I told you four before I told you three. Does your life bear visible spiritual fruit? They had a healed man standing beside him. He stood right beside him. It was, it was a testimony of the fact that their life bore fruit. Does your life bear fruit? I'm not talking about have you healed someone, but have you shared Christ with someone? Is there someone whose life is deeper in him because of you? Is there someone that is encouraged because of you? Is there the fruit of the Spirit born in your life? All of those things we all need to ask ourselves. Are we really comfortable in the presence of Jesus? These are good tests to determine that. Every one of these represents a life of prayer. Time in the presence of God. You will not be comfortable in God's presence. Listen to me unless you have a consistency in your prayer life. If you pray once a month or every time there's a crisis and that's all you pray, you're not gonna be comfortable in his presence. You gotta, you have to, it has to be a daily thing. You have to talk to him daily. You have to commune with him. You have to know him. And you won't have a language of prayer. Will you listen to me? This is really important. You won't have a language of prayer unless you know the word of God. Unless you're in the word. This Augustine actually said reading the Psalms gave him a language to speak to God. This helps us understand who he is and enables us to speak to him. Are you comfortable in the presence of Jesus? Oswald Chambers said this, a guilt-edged saint is no good. He's abnormal, he's unfit for daily life, he's altogether unlike God. We are here as men and women, not as half-fledged angels, to do the work of the world and to do it with an infinitely greater power to stand the turmoil because we have been born from above. Folks, we are children of God. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He is our friend. He is our father. He is our redeemer. We should be comfortable in his presence and we should walk in victory. Say amen if you believe that this morning. That was weak. Say amen if you believe that this morning. Secondly, the life that is a miracle is one that understands the sovereignty of Christ. This is really important. The sovereignty of Christ. Look again at part of their prayer. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and they said, and just this first line, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and, and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, 
They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Look who's gathered against him, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And what are they doing? They are doing whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you hear what they're saying in their prayer? They're saying, God, we know you're in charge. We know that even the death of our Savior was not an accident, but you are in charge. God, you are sovereign. You are in charge of all that is taking place. When we don't understand the sovereignty of God, we focus on the miracles that Tozer talked about, the magician God on the stage who moves at our whim. And it leads us to disappointment when things don't go the way that we expected them to go. This has been the downfall of the charismatic church or the hyper-faith movement. We have treated God like he is a marionette puppet that every time we pull the right string, he has to do what we want him to do. That by technique and skill, we can get God to act. But God is sovereign. Say amen if you believe God is sovereign. He's in control. Peter and John would have been devastated without an understanding of God's sovereignty when they were thrown into prison, but they knew this was part of God's plan. They understood that God was ordering their steps. Listen, either we believe that God orders the step of the righteous or we don't believe it. It's one or the other. And if I believe he orders my steps, then I have to believe that he knows what's going on and he is in control. More people. Barna says, point to the problem of evil and suffering as their reason for not believing in God than any other. It's not merely a problem, Barna says, it is the problem. A Barna poll asks, if you would ask, if you could ask God only one question and you knew that he would give you an answer, what would you ask? The most common response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? All of you have had conversations with people that you're trying to witness to, and that's always the question they ask. Why is there pain? Why are good people being hurt? Why are bad people not struggling? John Stott says the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Sensitive spirits ask if it can possibly be reconciled with God's justice and God's love. You all know that people say, listen, how does God heal that person and not heal that one? How does he do that miracle and doesn't do a miracle here? We've all experienced, we've all wondered it. It is the greatest single question that any of us could have. The problem of evil, writes Richard Swinburne, is the most powerful objection to traditional theism. You don't get very far in a conversation with anybody telling them about the Lord, someone who rejects the Christian faith before they bring up the problem of evil. An understanding of sovereignty comes only, listen to me, look, at, look right here for just a moment. Understanding God's sovereignty or, or reconciling with God's sovereignty only comes if you spend time in the presence of Jesus. Let me take you to Psalms. This is David. I'm gonna read through this slowly because I want you to get it. This is David. This is the guy who is a man after God's own heart. But look at his own musings. As for me, my feet almost stumbled. 
and my steps had nearly slipped. In other words, David said, I almost backslid. I almost gave up on this thing. Look, here's the reason, because I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they had no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. The word fat back then meant something other than it does today. That's not a great thing to us. They are not in trouble as others are. It just meant you were healthy. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. This is David. Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and they find a fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They just keep getting richer, all in vain. Look at this. David says, he's honest enough to say, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said this, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Stop there for a moment. David said, I have wasted my time being good. I've kept my hands clean. I've lived godly. I've worshiped him. I've given. I've come to church. I was glad to go to the temple. And these sorry folks are better off than I am. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but some of you have felt that way before. And we question that, God, why do I even bother? Next slide. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, until I went into the presence of God. And then I understood their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. What's David saying? Please look at me for just a moment. David is saying, as the people of God, listen, we're not living just for this life. We are looking for an eternal dwelling place. How many believe that? We're looking for an eternal dwelling place, and God will have the final word. We trust him. We live faithfully for him. It is not over. And so David said, when I went into the sanctuary, when I went into the presence of God, I understood that God, indeed, you are in control. And you indeed, Lord, have this thing in your hands. Can I tell you, I said it last week, I may have to say it several weeks in a row, we need to spend more time in his word and in the presence of Jesus than we do bombarding our minds with the naysayers and all the news that is telling us everything is so horrible. I'm not telling you not to watch the news. I'm telling you God has the final word. Please say amen if you believe that. And as people of God, we need to recognize that a life that lives as a miracle is one that trusts and understands that God is sovereign. Number three, the life that is a miracle is one that acknowledges their dependence upon God. Look what they prayed, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You know what that prayer makes clear? It makes clear that the apostles knew that within their strength, there was no capability to work a miracle. They couldn't do it. God, grant us the power. They were saying, God, unless you do something, Unless you enable your servants, we can accomplish nothing. The contemporary church in America 
who has been bombarded with more teaching on faith and miracles than any era of church history probably sees fewer miracles than any era of church history. And the reason is we have grown to depend upon ourselves. We have thought we could do it. We have thought we could manipulate things, that we were smart enough, that we were wise enough. The question of Jesus in Luke 18, 8, when the Son of Man comes back, will he even find faith on earth? That's a legitimate question. Because we now have faith in faith. We have faith in our systems. We have faith in our ability to, to move political machines instead of having faith in God. They recognize their dependence upon him. Like Jehoshaphat that we read about this week, if you're reading the devotional with us, Jehoshaphat said, our enemy is coming and we don't know what to do, but our eyes are up on you. Instead of thinking that we can manipulate things, our eyes need to be upon him. The life that is a miracle is one that acknowledges their dependence upon Christ. During the week of Christmas, I read through Hebrews chapter 11, that great faith chapter. Listen, let me just give you a little sampling. By faith, Abraham obeyed and went when he was told to the place where he would receive an inheritance, and he didn't have a clue where he was going. That's how much faith he had. By faith, he went when God said to go. By faith, Jacob blessed his sons, and he spoke things over them that it didn't seem possible could ever happen. By faith, Joseph, when his people are still in Egypt, he's dying, and he says, by the way, when you go to Canaan, carry my bones into Canaan. That was by faith. Where's the faith of the people of God today? Total dependence of God upon God. That's the life of miracle. Number four, let me give you the last two quickly. The life that is a miracle is one who accepts their responsibility before Christ. Look again at Acts 4.29. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants, look, to continue to speak your word with boldness. I really love this prayer because, listen, they didn't pray, God, would you get us out of trouble? God, would you smite those mean Jews or take out the Roman Empire? They just said, God, give us more boldness. We're not asking to get out of trouble. We're just asking you to give us more boldness so we can speak. They recognize they still had a responsibility. The three Hebrew children of Daniel chapter 3 stood before Nebuchadnezzar who said, if you don't bow down, to this golden image of Nebuchadnezzar, I'm gonna throw you in the fiery furnace. And they said, that's fine. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. And that faith, that willingness to take a responsibility set them up for a miracle. God calls us to take our responsibility and the life that is a miracle accepts their responsibility for Christ. Number five, and I'm done. The life that is a miracle is one that embraces the truth. I want you to listen to this. Give me four or five more minutes. The truth that the miraculous transcends present circumstances. Peter, um, think about this. Peter spoke to the lame man and he walked. A few years later, Peter would get crucified upside down and there was no miracle. John was with Peter and he stood with him by faith as that man walked. A few years later, John would be exiled on the island of Patmos because of his faith. He would be persecuted. 
Peter and John understood something that American Christians do not understand very well any longer. And that is that the miraculous transcends our present circumstances. The writer of Hebrews captures this so powerfully. Look at this text. After telling all those great things that people did by faith, he goes on to say, but others were mocked and flogged. They were chained and imprisoned. They were sown and they were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword and they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world wasn't even worthy. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these, though they were commended through their faith, didn't even receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Do you realize there's some people in the Old Testament that died never having received the promise that God gave to them? Why? Because there was something better, a better promise. A better promise that could only come when we came, and that was Jesus, and that was Old Testament, New Testament, collectively, the people of God for eternity. They had to wait on their promise, but they understood that the miraculous sometimes transcends our present circumstances. Let me remind you again, Philip Brooks, here's what he said, don't pray for easy lives, pray to be stronger men. Don't pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your task. Then, doing the work shall be no miracle, but you shall be the miracle. A life that is a miracle starts with prayer. It's a life that's comfortable with Jesus. People can tell you've been with him. It's a life that learns to trust his sovereignty. It's a life that acknowledges I'm totally dependent upon him. It's a life that surrenders itself to his purpose. And it's a life that recognizes that sometimes the miraculous isn't in the present, but it transcends the present, and we experience it at a later time. I want you to stand with me if you would, and I want to read you one last statement, and then we're done. Thomas Mayle, who was a Scottish theologian, he passed away in the year 2012. I want to encourage you, you might even want to screenshot this. It's not in your notes, but this is a really great statement. When the prayer made in faith is not answered, and the healing for which many have sought does not come, we are not to look for someone to accuse a failure in their faith. Whether, rather, we are to remember that besides faith, there is hope. Hope has to do with God's promises that are still future and hidden, just as faith has to do with promises that are here and now. To the person who has believed for today, I love this, for the person who has believed for today but has not seen the answer come today, there comes the call to hope. Hope says tomorrow also is God's. May not have done it today, but do we not believe that tomorrow belongs to God as well? And then this last line, enough has happened already to assure you that the rest is on the way. 
Bow your heads with me, if you would. Um, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts in this final moment. I believe, God, that you're doing different things in different hearts. And I just pray that you would lead us and guide us in this final moment. Your head's still bowed for just a moment. Possibly you're here today and... Um, don't know Jesus at all. You've never accepted Christ. You've never had a relationship with him. You're not comfortable in his presence. You don't even know him really. You know about him, but you don't never had a relationship with him at all. You say, Pastor Kevin, I, I want to know Jesus. I want to be right with him. I want to know that I have eternal life, but I, I want to know him. I want to grow in relationship with him. I'm not there yet. If that's you, and you would acknowledge that by an upraised hand, I'd love to pray with you this morning. If you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life, is there anyone in this room who would say, would you pray for me? I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I don't know him, but I want to know him. Anyone in this place? Let me ask you a second question with heads still bowed. I acknowledge this has not been the most articulate of sermons. Not that any of them are all that articulate. This certainly was not the most. But there's been a lot on my heart about this issue. And um, I am so concerned that we have put God in a box. We have thought that only if this happens, if A happens, then only then. A and B happen, then only we can have success. And if A and B don't happen, then we don't have a plan. You hear the problem with that? We don't have a plan. It's not about our plan. That might be in your personal life. That might be on the national scene. But I just really believe in that we're going to sing this song. You've probably not heard it before unless you heard it on the radio. We've never done it here just simply says, God, I'm going to surrender and I'm going to make room. I'm going to lay down my ideas, my plans, my doubts, and I'm going to make room for you to work in my life. With your heads bowed for just a moment, how many would just honestly say, Pastor Kevin, I need to make a fresh commitment today to say, God, I want to make room in my life for you to work. How many would raise your hand with me and say, I need you. I need to make room. I need to push my plans, my agendas out of the way. Let's sing this together and make it your prayer this morning.